My dear family, I found a brand new translation of the New Testament last week as I was working on this sermon. He translates those words, brothers and sisters. In the original Greek, it would be adelph. He translates it as my dear family. He's trying to convey what Paul is doing in this letter to his friends in Thessalonica, to this congregation that he so carefully took care of and raised up, nurtured. My dear family, my, my beloved, he's saying. My brothers and sisters, my dear ones. I have a very good friend. Her name is Joanne. She's a marvelous pastor. She, in fact, is a regional minister of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ out in, in Colorado. She oversees all of the congregations there. I got to know Joanne when she and I served as moderators of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ from 2013 to 2015. She was the second vice moderator, and it was her job to lead the worship services, whether it was our general board of 20 who was gathering, or if it was the general assembly of 5,000, which in fact happened here in Columbus in 2015. Whether it was 20 or 5,000, Joan would always stand up at the beginning of the worship service and say, good morning, God's beloved. And, and everyone, you could just feel everyone in the whole room just go, okay, we can start now. The Holy Spirit is here. She just kind of had that, that sense about her. I, I say those words, good morning, God's beloved, and it just sounds cheesy and corny and kind of hokey when I say it. But Joanne, she says it, and you just want to sink back into the pew and feel like you're, you're wrapped up in the very arms of heaven's love. It's an amazing thing. In fact, I'm going to suggest that we bring Joanne out here some weekend as one of our spiritual searchers. We're going to have her come up in the pulpit and say, good morning, God's beloved, and then we'll just send her on back home. It'll be okay. She's a beautiful, beautiful soul. Paul, Paul, like Joanne, wants his friends to experience the same feeling, to realize they're already loved by God. They're already a part of God's family. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, as we've noted in this series, is almost like a, a love letter from a pastor to his church. He, he wants them to know how, how deeply in love it, he is with them. And, and as I said, the word that's translated as dear family is, is Adelphoi, the root of it is Adelph. It can mean brothers and sisters. It's fascinating to know that, that this translator changed it to family because in Paul's day, you would never use the word Adelph, brother or sister, to refer to someone else outside of your immediate family. It would have considered, been considered kind of scandalous for me to say, hello, Sister Deb, how are you today? People would have been shocked. You, you, 2,000 years ago, people would have said, oh, what's going on? That's, that's very strange. Why would they talk like that? For Paul... He says, nonsense. This is an intimate term used in our family because in the church, the waters of baptism are thicker than blood. In the church, we are already God's family. We are already covered in faith, hope, and love. He ignores the practice of the day to remind them that in the church, you are free to be who God created you to be. Here you are safe to be your true self, not something else but the child that God already loves. Now, I realize that our families and our churches are not always perfect. I know and you know that every family has issues. If you think your family doesn't have any issues, just meet with me afterwards and I'll help you find what they are, okay? <laughs> Everyone's got something. But there are moments. Aren't there moments? When you say, oh, yeah, this, this is what God intended for us. 
This is how God wanted us to experience each other. Sometimes in the church, it's one of those moments. You've, you've been there, haven't you? You see someone across the way. You haven't seen them for weeks, maybe months. Maybe they've been down to Florida. They've come back. You, you walk across the Brownlee Hall, and you find them, and you embrace them in a large embrace. So good to see you again, and your heart just beats a little faster because your friend has come home. Or maybe, maybe there was a Sunday you came to worship, and you were broken, feeling a loss. And another friend sees you, and she reaches out her hand and takes a hold of yours, doesn't say a word, but just looks right at you. It's like the hand of God holding you. That's what Paul's talking about, that family at its best. is When you have those moments, I, I remember a moment in my family, it was a few years ago when our boys were much younger, they were home because it was a snow day, but the, the snow had held off and didn't quite come until later in the afternoon, about 3 or 3.30, and it came, it came real fast, and it started piling up real quick. And so we, we closed the church. I sent everybody home. I drove home, found my boys waiting on the front porch saying, come on, Dad, it's getting pretty thick. We got to play in this. So we dragged the sleds out, went to our backyard. We had a pretty high berm in our backyard where you could slide down, and they were small enough where that worked out just perfectly. We played on the sleds for an hour and a half or so. I said, come on, boys, it's getting cold and get a little, little dark. Let's get on in the house. They said, no, let's keep on playing. Please, Dad, can't we keep playing, please? About that moment, I think they'd arranged this. Their mom came out with hot chocolate, and we stood out there in the cold. And, you know, boy, it was just wonderful to have that hot chocolate as the snowflakes continued to fall. And then they said, let's build two forts. Let's have a snowball war. Can we do that, Dad? One at one end of the berm and one at the other, and let's build snowballs. I said, sure, let's do it. So we built these two forts. Took us forever to get them built. And then we made all these snowballs. There were approximately 10,417 snowballs, at least that many. And then we had this awesome fight where they just pelted me with snowballs and went back and forth, back and forth, ran all around the house. It was unbelievable. By then it was dark, and it was getting pretty cold. And Julie came and said, come on in. I fixed some chili and some cornbread. Got in the house, put on some warm clothes, had a marvelous meal, sat down on the couch, all of us, found a Kansas Jayhawks basketball game, and by halftime, we were asleep. It was a perfect end to a perfect day. That's the sort of thing that Paul's using to describe the church. That's how he sees the church. It's a place where, at its best, we are loved and welcomed. Like my family and yours, oh no, we're not, we're not always perfect. But when we, when we practice love and kindness, grace and goodness, we find the church, that at the heart of everything we do at the church, there will be days when we look around and say, this was, this was the perfect end to a perfect day. As we've noted, though, in this series, not everything is perfect in Thessalonica. There's fear and worry at work in their congregation. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how there was this belief in, in the early church in those days that Jesus might come back that quick, any moment. Everybody need to be ready. And so there was a little bit of fear and anxiety because some of the members of their church had died. And you can feel it, can't you? We may not share that theological understanding, but we can feel the feelings the grandmother has passed away. The young mother who is too young to be taken, she's died. What about them? Paul, Pastor Paul, what about them? Will they, will they be left behind or forgotten? What's going to happen? The world is full of fear, anxiety. There's something going on in the community, too. We're not quite sure what it was, but it appears that this city was persecuting the folks in the Christian church. And so Paul, in a very simple 
and yet personal way addresses their fear and worry. I hope you noticed as you heard the text, he doesn't lecture, he doesn't point his finger, he doesn't get into their faces about, come on, now you ought to grow up a little bit. No, no, no. What he does is he reaches down into their fear and he lifts them up out of it. Beverly Roberts Gaventa, a very good theologian, she says, she says that what Paul does is he takes their anxiety and he turns that into fuel for moral behavior, for good moral behavior. I just love that image, that idea that somehow what feels like fear and anxiety and worry and all the rest can actually be turned into something else where we take action in the name of love, faith, grace, and hope. What a fascinating idea. Two weeks ago, we were shocked as the report went across our television screens or our phones, maybe on your computer, that there was another shooting, this one at a church. Over two dozen were killed. A few days later, there was a community-wide service. Hundreds attended. There were more people in the service than there were actual residents in the town. And the pastor of that church, who was gone on the day of the shooting, his name's Frank Pomeroy, he stood up in the pulpit and he delivered a sermon. He said, I suggest this, that unlike that young man who last week chose darkness, let us choose life. I'd like to meet that pastor someday. He understands his calling. And don't think that he was just offering simple little preacher words because one of the persons who was killed was his own 14-year-old daughter. There's anger in the room. There's revenge. There's anxiety. There's worry. There's frustration. There's all of those things. He reached down into their deepest, darkest fears, and he lifted them out and said, we will choose life. Life over darkness. He's relying on the, on the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, he's lifting them out of their fear and setting them free. We must do the same. We will take steps soon. I mentioned this in an email a couple of weeks ago to the congregation. We will take steps soon on forming a task force on gun safety. We are going to be a voice standing against the scourge of gun violence in our community and in our country. Now, let me be very clear. We will not operate from fear. We will not operate from anxiety. We will not seek to destroy anyone else, but instead we will work together for a safer and better world. Will we disagree? There is no doubt that we will. I want to bring dis dis disparate voices, different voices into this task force to wrestle together, to argue and fight and get to a point where we can indeed do something as a church and work together as the family of God. Which, by the way, this reminds me, there was a line in the text. I hope you heard it as, as it was read. Paul, Paul says, when they're saying there's peace and security, at that time, sudden destruction will attack them. Do you hear that phrase, peace and security? That's actually not Paul's words. That's a word that comes straight out of Roman politics. He's dropped it in here into his little letter to the Thessalonians. He's making a theological and a political statement, though. You see, when Rome said, well, we, we have peace and security, what they really meant was we have more swords and spears and chariots and horses and soldiers and ships and armies and more than anything else. In fact, we have probably more of those than every one of our provinces combined. So as long as you don't do anything against us, we don't have to utilize our horses and our chariots and our spears and our swords and our ships and our armies and our soldiers, then you will have peace and security. Don't do what we say and we'll take you out in a heartbeat. Paul is saying, 
in the clearest, most theologically and frankly politically appropriate way, nonsense. You think that it is weapons of war that brings peace and security. We know in the gospel of Jesus Christ, ultimately our security comes from the gifts of faith, hope, and love. Paul's words speak to us today. Our security as people of Christian faith is not rooted in more guns or even in the right political candidates being elected to the right offices. I mean, I haven't checked the news since 7 o'clock this morning, but have we had any more scandals? Has anything happened? And we're talking about both sides of the aisle, aren't we by now? From the highest office in the land to all the rest. It seems to be scandal after scandal after scandal. Where does our peace and security come from? According to Paul, it's very clear. You have faith. This is verse 8. You have hope. You have love. Now use them as your primary protection against the whims of this life. These gifts are already a part of who you are. They've already been given to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to find it. It's already there. They mean you have chosen light over darkness. He began his letter by saying the same thing back in chapter 1 of this little letter to the church in Thessalonica. It pops up in a lot of Paul's letters, this, 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 this three-word description of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. You remember 1 Corinthians 13, the most famous one, don't you? Now, these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Paul makes this point over and over and over again. He wants us to understand and see that these gifts give us more than enough strength to stand against whatever's at work in the world. There's another funny little line in verse 10. It sounded kind of strange. Jesus died for us so that we will live together with him. We hear that and we think atonement theology. We think of that idea that somehow God killed God's own son in place of us. It's a terrible theology. It doesn't get developed in Paul's day. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's a thousand years before that idea gets developed, and it's only in the last 150 years or so that's really taking root in, within Christianity. It has nothing to do with what Paul's writing. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, in the cross, in the crucifixion, we see what God will be willing to do, that God will give God's self. God will go to the very places of your death even to your grave and mine, to lift us up out of fear into the arms of God's gracious love. So Paul wants us to see that false security that we try to build into our lives is never going to be enough. Because frankly, all of this could be gone that quick. Things could change almost that quick. I'm not, I'll just, I'm not worried about the second coming. I'll just say that out loud. I'm not worried about it. Although I saw a bumper sticker the other day. Did you see this bumper sticker? I think I was out at the Easton Mall. It said, Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> May not be a bad idea. Maybe we can sell those in the store here at Brownlee Hall. I, I don't know. Make a couple extra dollars. Now, I'm not, I'm not worried about tomorrow, but the fact is, life can change this quick, can't it? It can change in a heartbeat. Several years ago, when I was working on my, doc working on my doctorate, I was driving north on Interstate 15 in Southern California on my way to Claremont for a doctoral seminar. It was raining, raining hard that day. It was that one day in Southern California when it rains. <laughs> I was in the left lane going north, right around the speed limit, I think, when all of a sudden my car started to hydroplane to the right. 
You ever hydroplane? It's kind of a scary feeling. So I overcorrected to the left, and that sent my car careening into the, into the grassy median, went down into the, to the grass and the wet mud that was there, kicked up a bunch of dirt, flew on over into the southbound lane as I was traveling north, looking sideways out of my window at a car that was coming right at me. Uh, we had what's called a moment of profane silence there. And then I spun my wheel and went back on into the, I got into the medians, kicked up a whole lot more mud and dirt and car kind of flattened out a little bit. My heart was pounding. I checked my arms and my legs. Everything seemed to be okay and in place. And I turned around and drove back home. I called the professor, told him what had happened. He said, I understand. Not, not, we'll see you next week. Went back to class the next day and he said, hey, Glenn, I'm glad you're here. Uh, tell, why don't you tell the whole class what happened? I told them the story and as I'm telling them the story, a woman in the class, another student in the class sitting next to me is weeping. Finally, I stopped and said, are you okay? And she said, about an hour after you were there, my neighbor's daughter was on the same stretch of road. She went into the median. She went into oncoming traffic. Her life was taken. It can happen that fast. Now, Paul's not trying to scare us into right living. He's reminding us how precious life is right now, how much it matters, how and who we love, how fleeting and brief this life can be. So live our lives now as though it's the last moment we have with the assurance of faith, the action of love, and the strength of hope. Get out there and be alive. And there's a strong word for the church here too. This lesson from Paul is not about the rapture, about making your way to heaven. That's not what it's about. It's about living today in the light of, the, uh, light of God's love and our shared experience as the family of God. L listen to these words from Philip Gully. If the church were Christian, listen to this. If the church were Christian, we would do what Jesus did. Equip one another to live better in this world and stop fretting about the next one. Now, you know, if this was an amen church, you would have amen that point right there. <laughs> In fact, I, I said this earlier, I'm going to say it again. The first person that amens my next sermon gets a free lunch for me, just so you know, okay? I'm saying it out loud. Our job is to equip one another to live better in this world and stop fretting about the next one. A few years ago in a sermon, I said, in fact, God wants a group of loving atheists more than God wants a group of mean, angry, and judgmental Christians. Now, <laughs> yes, I, there's some, thankfully I can't see because of the TV light, so I will have to, we'll have to arm wrestle for that later. I said that in that sermon, and somebody didn't name, man. I got a letter the next day. The, the service is broadcast on the radio there at that church. Someone wrote me a note and said, you're a terrible pastor, and you're leading your people to hell with that kind of thinking. I wanted to write back, Thank you for proving my point. <laughs> I did not. I did not. We are called to be kind and to let faith, hope, and love prepare us for whatever is next. Because here's the hard reality. Life's difficult. If you've read Scott Peck, you've run into those three words. Life is difficult. Leonard Sweet, who's a really good theologian, he says that, that every one of us will face a hard day. It reminds me of, 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 of a moment in Jesus' ministry. It's in the gospel. It's in Luke's gospel. I think the chap, ninth chapter. 
There's all been all these miracles, wonderful teaching, all this good stuff. And then all of a sudden Luke says, and Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Do you hear what he's doing? It's a foreshadowing. Now, now this is sort of in prelude. Now, Jesus is going to face the rulers of this world who think that it's about chariots and spears and swords and soldiers, and he's bringing nothing but the weapons of love, grace, faith, and hope. Leonard Sweet, the guy I quoted a moment ago, he says, every one of us will have our Jerusalem. Every one of us will have our Holy Week. Every one of us will have a moment when life seems to have ended, when the doctor calls and says, I don't know what to say. Or maybe you receive a letter in the mail and she says to you, I'm done. It's over. Every one of us will face a moment. There'll be a time when life will hit you with its worst. Because life is like that. So how will we face it? With fear and worry and anxiety? With faith, hope, and love? When the darkness of the world seems to surround you and overwhelm you, will you choose to fight darkness with more and ever-deepening darkness? Or will you take the candle, even a single candle, and stand against the darkness of the world, proclaiming the God of love over and above all? This is not a question about the next life. It's a question about this life. How will you live today? How will we live as a church right now? Is there a breath in your lungs? Yes? Then you've got everything you need to face the darkness as we choose light.